It is a special honor to be a part of this particular service, and I must admit some uh, emotions on this day for myself because all that's gone into um, the raising the money, even though this is only 1.5% of the campaign, it seems such a small part, but it was such a big part because this was done by alumni, largely. In fact, even some of you sent in checks. You who have no money uh, sent in <laughs> a few checks for 20, I mean, it was amazing, really, uh, very, very powerful, and I am just so delighted that our alumni that, will, that have gone before you, I, I remember this space as being so special to them. They want to be a part of it. I'm also very thankful that Dr. Reg Johnson will be leading us in a moment later on for the Eucharist because for our st new students who are here before the season of Jessica Legrone, before the season of Bob Stamps, before the season of J.D. Walt, there was a season of Dr. Reg Johnson. So, <laughs> and it's a great honor to have him back uh, to... Uh, after so many years of faithful service here at the seminary to come back and close this special place down in our last Eucharist. Well, we actually know less about Habakkuk than almost any other prophet in the Old Testament. His name never appears outside of his own uh, prophecy. And so we don't realize often, being such a short little prophecy, how amazing and important and strategic his prophecy has been for the church, especially in this week as we remember the Reformation. We know a lot about the times he lived, and he lived in extraordinarily difficult and painful times, didn't he? He lived at a time when the Babylonians were extending their threat against the kingdom of Judah, and he actually witnessed firsthand uh, many of the uh, horrible incursions of the Babylonians as they came to rape uh, to enslave and salt the fields. It's unbelievable the cruelty that he witnessed, and it all comes out in the very first chapter. We don't know much about Habakkuk, but he is believed to have been a Levitical singer in the temple because his whole book is so much enshrined with so many things that reflect that part of the ministry of the, church, of the, of the temple life. In fact, the whole book is kind of a psalm. You have the uh, kind of predictable complaint against God, the divine response, and the resolution. And so, in any ways, when you read Habakkuk's um, prophecy, you're, you're reading essentially an extended, uh, one of the difficult, challenging psalms uh, of the Bible. Now, essentially, Habakkuk is a complaint. And it's important to remember also that the Reformation begins with a complaint, doesn't it? Uh, the 95 Theses began as a complaint, but it, if, it was, if complaints would renew the church, we would be in constant revival. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a resolution beyond that, both for Luther and for Habakkuk, but we do have a very serious two, really, complaints that are set forth by Habakkuk. The first is the sheer amazement of God's inaction in the face of unspeakable evil. And I, I love the fact that the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, as well as the New, but the Old Testament just kind of puts it out there. God, why are you sitting on your hands? Why are you inactive? Why are you not responding to this unspeakable evil 
that the Babylonians are perpetrating against the people of God. Of course, there are many incursions into Judah before it was finally sacked in 586 B.C. And so that's the first complaint. And of course, God responds to that complaint by saying, well, I have raised up Babylon to bring judgment against Judah because Judah has broken the covenant and I am judging the people of God. Which, of course, leads to the second major complaint, which is, Lord, why in the world would you choose and raise up a nation even more wicked than we are to bring judgment against us? It's at that point that our text opens. Because Habakkuk goes into the tower, I will stand at my watch post and set myself on the rampart, and I'll watch and see what the Lord will say to me. So Habakkuk goes into what I want to call a posture of waiting. Now it's very quick for us, especially or easy for us as evangelicals, and I want to quickly read on to the divine response and not actually capture the period of waiting, the posture of waiting. It's difficult to wait on God, isn't it? You know, we have, a, especially evangelicals, we have a propensity toward, we want quick resolutions, we want God to respond to things and kind of tie everything off neat and tidily. And the world isn't that way. And God plays the long game. And we always want him to play the short game. And so Habakkuk is actually in this posture of waiting on God, and he is in the face of all kinds of evil. And we, too, live in a world with unspeakable evil. We have every day more news of instability, the advance of evil, the brokenness of our political institutions, the rapid decay of morality, the assault on the Christian view of the body, the decline of the cohesion of the family, the tragic loss of truth, even the meaning of words. These are just a few of the carcasses of tragedy that are all about the landscape that we live and our ministries will be conducted in. And so it's difficult for us to to know how to live in that kind of world where we don't have the quick resolution. And Habakkuk teaches us something about the posture of waiting. And in this posture of waiting, which I think for us is not easy, we recognize something that actually later on we'll see that the Apostle Paul brings us to with the people of faith and the long game, the, the call for endurance and knowing that God will resolve things. And that's what happens in the next verse, where the Lord does, in fact, speak to Habakkuk, and we have uh, the beginning, or the, the, at least a nutshell, of the vision that the Lord tells Habakkuk to write down and make it plain on tablets. Now, if you know your Bibles, your Old Testament, you'll know, of course, that in Daniel 12, uh, Daniel's told to write it down but seal it up right? You know, write it down, but don't, don't tell anybody. And then in Revelation uh, 10, you have that moment where John is there, you know, about to write down the, the mystery of the seven thunders, and the angel says, no, don't even write it down. Really? We're actually to have I mean, John with his pen poised? Because God said, no, that's my mystery. So there's all kinds of examples where God gives visions, but don't, don't tell it, or I'm not even going to let you write it down. It's just in the mystery of God's eternal plans, and yet here you have God saying to Habakkuk, write it down and make it plain, and run with it. Okay, this is a really very powerful kind of open thing. So the, what is the vision? Well, the vision actually is summarized in, like a typical psalm, in a beautiful contrasting single couplet. Now, it turns out the first phrase 
really dominates the rest of the chapter kind of expounding on. The second is not expounded on. We'll come back to that later. But the whole thing is summarized in a simple couplet. The first phrase is this. And by the way, this couplet is like, I don't know, I think it's the Habakkuk. He's really like the Stephen Hawking's of the ancient world. Yes, Steve Hawking's. This is the biblical, what is it, the answer for everything? You know, the, the, uh, the kind of, the, Hawking is looking for that solution, that kind of idea, the, 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 the explanation for everything in the universe. Here it is, in Habakkuk. Stephen Hawking just hasn't found it yet. It's in Habakkuk. Because the whole world, the whole history of the world is actually summed up in one couplet. The first couplet says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Now, that is an interesting phrase. It's a personification of Babylon as a he. It could be the king of Babylon. It could be the whole nation personified or both. But it's basically saying this is the project of the whole Babylonian thing, which continues down to the present day in its own multifaceted forms. It's about proud, arrogant, boasting, Inside, you're not upright. And that paradigm continues on uh, for a long time. But then he has the second phrase, but, and then we have here the six words that rocks the world, that changes the church and defines the gospel. What are the six words? By the way, Hebrew, it's only three words. I see Bill Arnold here. Three words in Hebrew. Six words in the, in the English. The just shall live by faith. Now that is the vision for the whole people of God. The just shall live by faith. Now this particular phrase, though Habakkuk's name not appear in other canonical writings, this phrase is the phrase that's repeated, that's quoted three times in the New Testament. And these three times become absolutely pivotal for us to understand the nature of the gospel. And I want to just briefly highlight each of the three times. The first is found in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Of course, this becomes the great moment for Martin Luther. Martin Luther was uh, in seminary at the University of Erfurt. And he, in his day, would have studied the following theologians. Gabriel Bill. Dunn Scotus, Peter Lombard, and Ken Collins. No, <laughs> just joking. And Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas, Collins, you know. He would have studied these famous scholastic theologians. This is a 600-year period of time which really reigned theologically. These are really important theologians in Luther's day. Now, the scholastics had a lot of wonderful contributions, but one of the things that they did that's important in terms of hermeneutics, how they interpreted scripture, was everything was interpreted through a framework of works and law. It doesn't matter. Words like grace, faith, justice, justification, doesn't matter. They're all interpreted through the lens of Moses and through the idea of the law. So therefore, righteousness refers to God's active righteousness, which enables him to, to justly judge so Luther himself said, when he read Romans 1.17, he did not find anything in it that was good news. Paul in Romans 
says in that second phrase, and as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Now when Luther read that, he said himself, he said, this was a, quote, a thunderbolt in my heart. Because for Luther, he said, this, and by the way, this is particularly the way it reads if you read it in Latin, which is what he would have first read it in. It seems to imply that we must become just if we are to have our faith accredited by God. So for Luther, this is bad. Romans 1.17, quoting Habakkuk 2.4, is bad news. But he had gone to seminary. He had learned Koine Greek. He had learned Koine Greek. Do I hear any amens? <laughs> he decided to go back and read the New Testament in the original language. And he worked his way through in the famous tower, the Black Cloister, and he got to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Greek and then for the Jew, for it is written, uh, from real from faith to faith, as it is written, of course, Habakkuk, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther said, I realized when I read this in the original language, it was not what I thought it was. This was actually Paul talking about the righteousness of Christ being given as a gift to us. A gift to us through faith in Jesus Christ. This is amazing recognition, uh, realization. He, in fact, he actually uses the language, I felt like I'd been born again and I entered paradise through open gates. Romans 1.17 is, is, is uh, Luther's rediscovery of the gospel and it comes to the words of Habakkuk, those words which rock the world, change the church, and define the gospel. And of course, I think, I think Paul actually, in some ways, the whole of Romans 1 to 3 is Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk had, had realized that the, the Jews are guilty, the Judah's guilty, the Babylonians are, are under God's condemnation, God's judgment. That's, whole, that's Paul's whole argument, Romans 1 to 3. The Jews are guilty before God, the Gentiles are guilty before God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace which comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. This is the gospel. The second time it's quoted in the book of Galatians. Now recall that Luther worked his way through the book of Galatians after the Leipzig debate in 1519, first his lectures, then of course his, eventually his famous commentary on Galatians. He loved Galatians. Let's just say it. Luther called it, he actually even said, I'm not sure if this is theologically correct, but he called it the epistle to which he was betrothed. He said, it's my Katie von Bora. I wonder how Katie felt about that. He had two wives. He had Katie in the book of Galatians. <laughs> but his point was, he learned to love it because there he said, I learned here the distinction between the righteousness of the law and the righteous comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in Galatians 3.11 in particular where Paul says this quite plainly. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for then, here he is, he draws from the long vision of Habakkuk, for the just shall live by faith. And Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is the path of earned righteousness, by taking on the curse that was intended for us. 
and deserved by us. Luther later called this the great exchange. We who deserve God's judgment actually receive the righteousness of Christ and he takes on our sinfulness. That's the gospel. Now what Paul does here, which he does not do in Romans, which is important for the second quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, is that he ties it into the, to the whole posture of waiting that, of course, Habakkuk dwells in. It is here that Paul launches into this whole thing about Abraham, the faith of Abraham. And of course, Abraham in Genesis 15.6 quoted, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul looks back and sees Abraham is the ultimate man of faith. He is the icon of faith. He is our, our picture of faith, right? This was, for Luther, a huge eye-opener. This was actually the dismantling, in some way, of the whole scholastic project. Because we had, we had always interpreted everything through Moses. And now we're seeing that there is a greater covenant, a prior covenant, the covenant of faith. Moses, of course, is the, is the symbol of the law, but Abraham becomes a symbol of faith in the New Testament. This is, of course, the great covenant, the great work of God. Habakkuk 2.4, quote in 3.11, Luther saw, I'm no longer stuck at Moses. I now see the, the greater covenant of faith. The just shall live by faith. Goes back to Abraham, and the law was never meant to alter that, as we saw through the whole work of the New Testament. Well, thirdly, the final quotation comes in Hebrews chapter 10, 36 and 37. This is the third and last time that Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted. Now, Hebrews starts out where Galatians leaves off. He starts out with the long game, the, the, the call for endurance. And he, of course, remembers Habakkuk. And then Hebrews, ingeniously, using some language from Isaiah 26, but he quotes uh, Habakkuk 2.4, but he changes the quotation. He makes a very important alteration. Because you remember in the Habakkuk vision, we're told that the vision's for appointed time, and he repeatedly uses the word it. Let me just read them for you. Make it plain, there's it. The runners will run and who read it. It awaits its appointed end. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It will not tarry. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You have nine times, and different based on what English translation you use, it could be between seven and nine times the word it is used in translation to describe this vision. But notice how Hebrews quotes it. Okay, because all those it, 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 but the just shall live by faith. Hebrew quotes it this way. He doesn't say it will come and it will not delay. He says the coming one will come and he will not delay. Yes, the just shall live by faith. Now the third quotation of Habakkuk in the New Testament, and we get the final vision. The righteousness of God is not an it. It's a he. It is not merely that Christ gives us something. We, we get that. Luther got that that Christ gives us his righteousness, but he really realizes ultimately it is not simply that God gives you his righteousness, he gives you himself. He is God's righteousness. He is our peace. He is the vision Habakkuk waited for. He is the city whose maker is builder is God that Abraham longed for. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of the universe. He is our peace. He is God's long game. 
God does not give us a strategy. He gives us a person. The Babylonians and all their heirs who fill the world to the present day will someday be defeated by Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand until all his enemies are made his footstool. Let that be said on the last day of Esther's chapel. Death itself will be defeated by Jesus Christ. Not through something we have, but through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Reformation, and it's been said so beautifully by Dr. Collins and earlier and, and all throughout this week, uh, but Dr. O'Malley as well, the Reformation is not an insertion of a bunch of upstart people who just like to divide the church. The Reformation is the recovery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what it's about. The Reformation is the greatest act of Catholicity. It's nothing less than the rediscovery of the gospel, and every generation must rediscover it again, lest we forget it. And it's this. We don't have a plan to repair this broken world. We don't have a strategy to fix Washington, D.C., we don't have even an evangelical blueprint to turn back the tide of moral chaos. We have something better. Not a something, a someone. Jesus Christ. And through faith in Jesus Christ, God changes the world because he is the changer. The just shall live by faith. Those are the six words that rock the world, change the church, and define the gospel. I love the fact that once you realize what Abraham I mean, what Habakkuk was saying through the, through the Holy Spirit, he actually, in those, those simple six words, three in the Hebrew, in those simple six words, he actually cast the vision of the whole redemptive history of the, of the people of God. He, it, it calls back to Abraham, the father of faith. It goes all the way through to Christ, the man of faith who died upon the cross and rose again and looks forward to the coming one, the final eschaton, who will usher in the great righteousness of God and make set things right through the new creation. This is the vision of Habakkuk. This is the vision which recaptured the Reformation and brings us to where we are today. Righteousness is a he, not an it. Well, Habakkuk comes down from his tower, and after waiting, he heard from the living God, and the whole prophecy concludes like this. I want to just read it to you. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord, is Yahweh is my strength. He makes my feet like deer. He makes me tread on high places. This is the gospel. We are seated in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. And he is our righteousness. He is the hope of the world. And we will end this time in SSL by saying that is the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thanks be to God.